Jeffrey, it's not working. And I was like, I, I know, George, I have one more day. And uh, the next day was the first performance, and it worked. And the way that I look at it is that you, I like to take as much time as I need to in order to develop something, and I needed that one more day. Hi, I'm Katie Lazarus. On this episode of Employee of the Month, which was recorded live at the Bell House in Brooklyn, I had the pleasure of speaking with a Brooklyn resident as well as Tony Emmy Golden Globe and Employee of the Month award winner, the extraordinary actor Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey made his debut in Angels in America. He's also been in Basquiat alongside David Bowie and Christopher Walken, as well as The Hunger Games, Shaft, Casino Royale, and of course, Detox with Stallone. Right now, he's starring in Westworld on HBO. And I was so happy to be able to speak with him about a documentary he recently produced, which is called We Are Not Done Yet, again, also on HBO. And of course... He was a big athlete in high school and college, lacrosse and football. Guess who he played with? You will never guess. And that is why you must, must, must listen to our interview. And I also got to speak with Brian Lair. You can hear our first interview on Employee of the Month show. You can also hear the recording that was when podcasts were just getting made. But Brian Lair, and I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic, is an exceptional journalist, and it was such a privilege to have him on the show as well. So without further ado, here's my first interview with Jeffrey Wright. to start out and ask how did playing lacrosse at prep school and at Amherst you know help you prepare for it seems like a huge extraordinary role oh here you are um that is you correct that is me I was ninth grade in high school that's at St. Albans that was how did it prepare me for what to be a a drag queen in Angels in America (laughs) (laughs) um it's, it's actually a, a reasonable question. I don't think that, they may now, but certainly when I was playing lacrosse and football and things like that uh, in high school, we weren't at least uh, explicitly talking about issues of homosexuality and, you know, exploring that side of, our, of ourselves and kind of expressing our femininity and things like that. So it was, um, it was a leap for me. It was kind of, it wasn't easy for me, actually. To kind of go from the you know the locker room knucklehead to the uh, drag queen, that was a, that was a little bit of a leap. Until Kavanaugh, it was always hard to describe where we grew up in D.C. And oh God! <laughs> I think it's probably harder now. Now I feel like it sucks out any of the other positive elements. I actually graduated the same year as he did. Wow! I played football against him. I guarded him every play. He was a cornerback wide receiver. I was a cornerback wide receiver. So literally every play, I had Kavanaugh. I just remember, you know, he was like kind of these like we try harder kind of guys. Um, but I just remember he had these strange wide hips. That's, just, that's all I remember. <laughs> Maybe that was like an Angels of America like precursor or something. I don't know. But I just remember that. And I, I remember we kicked their asses senior year. Um, but yeah, because you know you get the little scouting report, you know, weekly, and it's like, okay, you got right, you got Kavanaugh. Okay, so I literally stared into um, the eyes that is 
that abyss, like literally every fucking play of the game. And isn't it amazing, even if you don't know the dates that you um, played against him, you're 100% sure it, it happened. Let's see that calendar. Let's check out that calendar. I brought my notebook along with me <laughs> as you know, proof. Do you know Squee? <laughs> All of those assholes we played against. There was only one school that I despised more than that school, and that was Landon, uh, which was another school out in the suburbs, out in M- Montgomery County. Our school was, yes, elitist and exclusive and all of that, but we were at least in D.C. Yeah. And we, you know, I was a kid from southeast D.C. on the other side of town. Hey, give it up. <laughs> southeast, baby. But these schools, like, they, I remember they always had, like, one brother who played like running back and they'd be like, run Otis, run. And it was like so, oh my God. They, I literally get hives thinking about these schools now. But Landon, which was maybe 30 minutes from Georgetown Prep, way out in the most vanilla uh, suburb. If you remember, there was an incident down at UVA uh, a few years ago with a lacrosse player who... Um, Killed his girlfriend. He was a Landon kid. And I don't say that to disparage the school, but. A <laughs> little bit? A little bit? <laughs> I think it probably does that for itself to some extent. But um, I do think that, and, you know, we weren't immune from this as well. There was kind of a bubble of impunity that these kids grew up inside of, particularly out there. Um, a bubble that hovered over the country club culture that they grew up in, and they were protected by uh, re- the resources of their parents. They were yeah. protected by the fact that you know, you know, some dad, some kid's dad was a judge, or mom was a DA, or whatever. And that same bubble of 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 impunity was what followed him into those Senate hearings. And the Republicans in the Senate provided that bubble, the same one that he had, you know, in the 1980s in, in high school. Only now, it was, uh, it was a bubble that, you know, that ushered him onto the highest court in our country, despite his expressed love for... Uh, Rape? For... <laughs> for, uh, for beer. And... Uh, <laughs> Which I, you know, I suppose qualifies you, I guess, now, you know, yeah. to be a Supreme Court judge. How much did gro- growing up in that world, how much does it impact when you're playing all these, you know, politicians or, or playing various roles in which, it, I'm just curious if it informs you or if you can even break it up that way. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's the reason that I do that stuff. Because, you know, if you grew up in D.C., it's like, you know, when you're born, the doctor slaps you on on the ass and, and, and asks you your political affiliation. I mean, that's just the <laughs> way it goes, you know? It's like, you know, you, if you grew up in Hawaii, you surf. If you grew up in D.C., you do politics, you know? So for me, when I started acting, which was late, like my junior year of college, there was... I love that you consider junior year of college late. Well, well, <laughs> I, when I was in... I, I didn't do any yeah. of that stuff at St. Albans at all, or, you know, even prior to that. And in fact, the the guy who was the go-to actor in my class is now a uh, senator from Colorado, Michael Bennett. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, so we kind of, you know, I was aspiring toward politics and, and law and things like that. And I think, in fact, Michael went to 
law school with Kavanaugh, but um, it's all one little tiny little circle of, thing, of stuff. But um, yeah, it was for me, it was like the merging of these two interests, which was creative interests and political interests. So, you know, when I did Angels in America on Broadway, like seven years after I graduated college, it was like heaven, you know? And in fact, I had a conversation with a friend of mine. I used to live on 106th in Amsterdam in Manhattan. Hey. Yeah, yeah. 106th, I do owe you rent. Um, but I remember one night, a friend of mine from college came down, and we were, we were up late one night. I had this little tiny little, like, just most depressing little uh, lovely romantic space there. And we're sitting there one night, and we're hanging out, drinking, whatever. And he said to me, and he, was, he, was, he said, Jeffrey, you know, the theater is the highest calling. And I was like, oh, bullshit. And he said, no, it's the highest calling. He said, and one day, you're going to do a play in which you announce the death of Reagan. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> um, perhaps a little insensitive this day, but uh, <laughs> that's what he said those many years ago. And for me, that was Angels in America. And it's um, also World AIDS Day, so it is a timely time to talk yeah, about. Yeah, so it's balanced in that regard. <laughs> Wouldn't call that balance, but yeah, but, right? but, would you say that, that well, my, <laughs> more my, than one reality my, can uh, coexist? No, it's, it's apt, and at the same time, it might be a little bit insensitive, so that's all good. But yeah, it's, you know, politics and storytelling, for me, are kind of a natural extension of having grown up in that crazy town. And insensitive is a great segue for my next question. Awesome. But also, because you've had such a phenomenal rise and such a uh, prolific career, I was wanted to share in part so that people can uh, feel less daunted, but also I was surprised to know that given the accolades you duly deserved for Angels in America, you were almost fired during it. Oh, yeah. Um, we can't talk about lacrosse anymore. <laughs> Actually, my lacrosse game totally suffered <laughs> uh, uh, as I started acting. It was, that's true. A couple friends but, of mine were all American senior year, and, and I was supposed to be the guy... But I started acting and, you know, I'd show up limping at, you know, rehearsals and... I'd from be, all those exercise, the... Be, from just getting my ass beat on the oh. field and I, I sprained ankles and the like. And, and Pearl Primus, who was the... She was the first American to kind of transcribe African dance for American dancers. Pearl Primus was choreographing this Wolosh play that I did <laughs> my, my senior year and I come in limping and she's like... Lacunle, which is the name of the character. Lacunle, are you going to be an actor or are you going to be this lacrosse player? So I was like completely torn, you know, by the thing. Anyway, I said, okay, enough about lacrosse. So, um, so no, I really want to hear all about you, you, lacrosse. Should, I, just, oh, I missed it from I, high school. I, the only thing, I, I, can only, the, I can only talk about it because those glory days are long gone now. But um, you, you were asking about... I'm being fired. About being fired. <laughs> yes. On to the glory days of the theater, yeah. Well... It actually has something to do with your original question about, like, trying to, or my answer anyway, trying to find this person within myself, you know, which was not someone that was shared too often, um, this kind of flamboyant feminine man, you know? And I was walking into a situation in which everyone else in the play had done the play before, and I here I am, like, kind of, you know, I was auditioned, I was hired, George Wolf said, I saw a thousand Negroes, I chose you. And I, why are you, what are you moaning about? <laughs> you guys are fine. Negroes are okay. <laughs> it's okay. So, uh, 
So, so you know, but I, I, I got the job. I showed up. Really daunting piece. A lot going on. First Broadway thing. And I was, it, it was, and I felt that I was being observed. So and, you know, I had to reveal this thing, this part of myself that I, you know, hadn't necessarily been fully comfortable revealing. And then uh, Tony was like, you know, and it was, you know, it was huge expectations for the show. Yeah. And Tony, particularly, Tony was like, oh, you know, I became like, you know, the magnet for everyone's frustrations. It was all kind of hidden from me, but... Did the, you feel it? I knew that I was kind of like not quite getting there. So the afternoon before our last rehearsal, before the first preview, George Wolf called me up at home and I answered on my rotary phone because it's that long. I answered the phone and he's like, Jeffrey, it's not working. And I was like... I, I know, George, I have one more day. And uh, the next day was the first performance, and it worked. And the way that I look at it is that you, I like to take as much time as I need to in order to develop something, and I needed that one more day. And when it came time to get out on stage and do it, then it happened. Well, and so, also to shut out, I mean, you have all these variables going on at once. Like, you're trying to find a character, and then you have all these producers with, you know, their various needs. Yeah. So there are a lot of things going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember one day I was doing I was doing this scene, rehearsing on stage with Steven Spinella, and uh, George, and I, he said a really brilliant thing to me. I, I said, you know, George, I said, I don't know if I necessarily feel comfortable yet with this. And he said to me, he said... I don't want your comfort. I want your talent. I was like, ooh, okay, noted. <laughs> and then I walked across stage going back to my queue, and he said, also, drag queens don't drag their feet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. But it, it's also like the constructive criticism is a compliment and it is, I guess, to me, mentoring when people can be honest, especially in our profession where everything's so nice and so you don't know why you're not getting a part or you don't necessarily know what's going on yeah well george was also incredibly because i was that one out of a thousand negroes that he had hired for that role he was incredibly supportive and protective and nurturing and i was the youngest person there and i was and all this stuff and you know he gave me the space and you know that was the first of i think eight shows that we've done together i think five on broadway since so yeah he's He's a central figure in my artistic life and godfather to my kids. So it all worked out. I wanted to ask one other person I was curious about actually from college. And Susan Laurie Parks, who's been on Employee of the Month, and this is a great time to plug the podcast. You can listen to our interview. She also had James Baldwin as a professor. and, And I saw that you had as well. What impact, if any, did he have on you? That is one of the uh, most horrific experiences of so my bring it up. of my college life, and I'll tell you why. It's you know I don't like. I was just asked recently by someone if I regret what regrets that I have, and I and I said to them that you know now that I have kids, I don't really have regrets. I'm too focused on chasing my kids and uh, and trying to uh, be a good father to them. And you know if things had changed, they might have veered away from things that led me to. Uh, to being their fathers. Anyway, uh, but so I don't have many regrets, if any, but one regret I do have from college. I took a class uh, that he would lecture at every Tuesday, James Baldwin. And it was over on UMass campus, UMass Amherst, shared town. Hey, everybody is here. Yeah? (laughs) Cool. And he was sick. 
I was doing a play. I was playing lacrosse. I was also, this was my uh, second semester of my senior year, in which, you know, your focus tends to trail off into the first semester uh, postgraduate life. And he lectured maybe three classes that semester. I missed every one of them. Just want you to know, in case you didn't have a Jewish mother, apparently you have a lot here. Yeah. In case yeah. you didn't feel badly enough, we are all here yeah. to echo. <laughs> Michael, Michael Thelwell. It was Michael Thelwell's class. I forget, forget what, it was, what exactly it was But you're titled. sure it happened. I'm sure it happened. Michael Thelwell, Michael Thelwell wrote uh, The Harder They Come, and it was his class. And I think James Baldwin passed away maybe six, six or seven months after that. So, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, a, not a story I'm proud, proud. But I share it with you because here we all are. I wanted to actually, I am going to use this as, as a segue because you have been exceptionally socially thoughtful, I have found, in your career on stage and off. And I was so touched by the documentary that you worked on, We Are Not Done Yet. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to share a clip and then, oh, then we cool. can talk about it. It is currently playing on HBO. It is 40 minutes, so there is no excuse not to see it. And you can even get a membership for however long you need it to make sure you see it. And you may want to continue it. It's actually streaming for free for a couple of more weeks. There you go. Although you're in every HBO show, so they may want to also get a membership. <laughs> and while we wait to, to set that up, why don't we can, we can set up what this is? Well, the film chronicles a group of veterans and active service members that I had the privilege and joy to uh, direct in a stage reading of a collective poem that they had written as part of a therapy workshop whereby they use the written word to confront their traumas related to their military experience, both uh, combat-related and also as a result of sexual trauma. And they're just... The gentleman that you're about to see, I was just trading texts with before I got over here. They are, um, you know, we hear so many platitudes and so many kind of uh, superficial descriptions of these people. They're the best of us. And, uh, you know, the whole thank you for your service culture and things like that, which I don't think does justice to their complexity and to their diversity of, of persona. But this idea that they're the best of us was kind of proven out to me in working with them an extraordinary group of people, and he says something fascinating about the military. He says the military doesn't know it, but they're actually training artists. He says they teach you to observe everything you encounter in detail and to communicate all that you've seen and to take action. And for him, he says if you have a story and you're able to do that, then you're an artist. And he's a stunning man. And uh, his name is Joe Merritt, retired Marine Corps sergeant. Remove the aggression... Insert the pen. Transplant the ball peen with a ball point until the vice grips of your palms transform into feathers. Know that this fist can wrap around flowers as easily as pistol grips, and that sometimes left hand flowers, right hand pistol grips. I had a good friend of mine from high school who was killed in Ramadi. I watched his mom cry on the front lawn for two and a half days. And I joined the Marine Corps to try to prevent moms from laying in the front yard. I was in the Marine Corps for 10 years, went to Afghanistan, supported Iraq, and was medically retired. Now I'm a visual artist. 
each person who, who speaks in the movie who, who are profiled and as well as you'll see on stage at, I believe it was the Shakespeare Theater? The uh, Landsberg Theater, the yeah, Landsberg with the Shakespeare, Theater. Uh, Washington Shakespeare Theater Company's home. They each shed light on the complexities of being an individual and dealing with trauma in real time mm-hmm. and how art can help you. I was curious, like... For you, how did you deal? Because you're helping them prepare to go on stage, people who have never acted before, never been on stage before, and they're dealing with so much trauma. Like, I was just curious how you dealt with ensuring that it wasn't contrived intimacy. Contrived intimacy? Yeah, that it, that it was both therapeutic and also respectful. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't exploitative? Yeah. Well, that was easy because the idea came from within. It was their idea. It was one of them who, uh, another extraordinary guy named Abigailio, um oh my God, I'm going to destroy A.V.'s name. The small one? The small, yes, yes. Um, Vana, sorry, Vanaupo uh, Abigailio. That's why we call him A.V. <laughs> but A.V. is from American Samoa. And if you didn't know, and I didn't know this, American Samoa provides more folks to the military per capita than any other territory or state in the United States. He's one of them. He also happens to come from a long line, apparently, of chiefs. He's a beautiful, powerful soul and man who served, I think, maybe five or six tours and suffered some moral injury as a result. But A.V. is a leader, was a leader before, during his uh, service, and is a leader now, and it was his idea Why don't we write a poem together and do it on stage? And so as timing had it, I had reached out to the Department of Defense about getting involved in some way. And when I reached out, there were a number of reasons why I did. Which were? Well, first was traveling to Sierra Leone in 2001. Which is a place that you were doing mining. No. Okay. That's No, that was a New York Times clickbait bullshit uh, headline. Good to know. There is no mine, uh, okay. and we've kind of put that commercial idea aside. That's a long story. I'm glad um, I could bring it up. We had some exploration properties. What's that? I said I'm glad I could bring, bring yeah, it up. What, what the, I, well, that idea was about trying to drive economic development in, a, in Sierra Leone, uh, in a very specific community, around available resources, as opposed to driving development through handouts, through charity, but it was trying to identify competitive advantages in that rural community that could be used as engines for stability and prosperity coming out of the war. And it just so happens that in many parts of rural Africa, certainly in Sierra Leone, there are two competitive advantages, minerals and agriculture. And the primary sources of income for most people in those communities are mining and farming. And so the liberal mind looks at it and goes, oh, what are you going to, you know, I get uh, on Twitter from like kind of the, you know, extreme, like intransigently left. Ah, mining, that's what the people do. And if you want to understand how to partner with the people and work to their benefit without imposing your idea of who they are, then, you know, mining is one, is one way that it can be done. If it's done responsibly, if it's done in a way that veers away from traditional historical practices of exploitation and colonialism and uh, raping and pillaging and all that shit, which is not my interest. But anyway, so I went to Sierra Leone because I had been studying the war for a number of reasons. I saw a film called Cry Feet Freetown about the war 
blew my mind, started reading everything that I could about it. There were a lot of interesting confluences that were happening in Sierra Leone around private military companies, around resource exploitation, around ultimately the establishment of a UN special court, a tribunal that was uh, used as a model in Iraq. There was a lot of shit going there, going on there, and I was intrigued by it. About a year after that, I was working on a film in Mozambique called Ali, Michael Mann directing, directed this movie, Will Smith playing Ali, and there was a guy there who was head of security, and uh, he was Fijian, and he looked like what Brando wanted to be when he moved to Tahiti, was the way I described it. It's like <laughs> nice. his glowing green eyes. And we kind of we hit it off. And I, he's like, I was like, Fred, what are you doing here? He said, I mean, so how, what, are you, what are you doing in Africa? Oh, I live in Africa. He was former SAS, British Special Forces. Michael Mann had found him to protect us from in the wilds of Mozambique. It was, in, it was a little overkill. But that's another story. Hollywood in a developing country, yes. that's another That's a horror genre. But um, it was weird. Uh, anyway, but Fred was, Fred was like, you know, we, were, we, we hit it off. And I was like, well, you, 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 you live in, in Africa? He's like, oh, I live in Sierra Leone. You live in Sierra Leone. I'm like, really? How long have you been in Sierra Leone? Oh, 94. And I'm going, oh, what? 94? The war was like kicking off in '94, and then I go, then I kind of, oh, security, SAS, '94, Sierra Leone, oh boy, um, he was fighting there. Wow. He hadn't gone there originally to fight there. He went there originally to work for an exploration company that was exploring, uh, prospecting. I think gold. Is that like the guys in, like, in the park where they're looking for coins? Exactly like that. Yeah, with the little with the thing with the disc. And uh, I've been thinking about getting yeah, into looking that. Looking for old. So anyway, um, Fred took me. He's like, Jeffrey, we, you, know, you know so much about what, what was happening there. Why don't you come see with your own eyes? I'll take you there when we finish filming. You come see because it's, you know, so you really understand. So I called my, my, my wife at the time, who's my ex now. I said, Carmen, this guy just invited me to Sierra Leone. She's like, well, you have to go. It's all you ever talk about. So we finished filming in Ghana. And uh, from Ghana, we flew from Accra. We flew down to Freetown. It was a ceasefire at the time, uh, but 17,000 UN troops there. More guns than I'd ever seen in my life or ever hoped to see again. I was there for four days, and it started to change my thinking about people who soldier. Um, Walked into a refugee camp, saw an 18-month-old girl with her arm hacked off, it shakes, it changes your, you no longer take for granted some of the things that you previously took for granted. And so I started going back there to see if I could help in some way in the rebuilding of the, of the country, because that country is a very interesting tie to American history. Yes. It was repatriated by uh, slaves who were promised their freedom if they aligned with the British during the American Revolution, hence Freetown. So, and there's a really kind of delicious Creole that they speak there that kind of drew me in. And eh. so I, you know, I started to see, you know, how I could be helpful. It was also the poorest country in the world at the, at the time. So, you know, went back over the course of 10, 12 years, about four times every year, including two times toward the end of the Ebola crisis. So anyway, going to a place like that, and actually the thing is, when I went there during the war, I actually felt more at ease than I did on that set in Mozambique. That just tells you about the nature of our business sometimes. But going there, as I said, I no longer took for granted security. I no, no longer took, took for granted order as we all sit around here. and We take for granted that 
when we go outside, we'll make it home safely for the most part. Ideally, um, the traffic lights will work. You know, we'll turn the power on when we get in our house. Everything will be cool. But when the order falls away, when you live within a failed state, those things can't be taken for granted. And the people who work to restore that order, who take up arms to restore that order as well, can no longer be taken for granted. That was one of the first processes that began my interest in these people. I remember, and I remember I went to the Democratic convention. I'm going to get a drink while oh, you cool. talk about this. Am I, you, cool. When, when Obama was first... Uh, remember him? I do, I do. <laughs> I do. When he was first nominated. And I remember there was a, uh, I ended up working with a bunch of veterans uh, around some of the projects that we worked on. One was a retired major general that I was introduced to by a retired brigadier general. This major general had lived in Liberia for two years post-retirement. We were introduced. He was an incredibly progressive thinker. We ended up starting a foundation together. Uh, he passed away about a month and a half ago. I'm but so sorry. That, when, that's the Taya Lee line? Taya, yes. Yeah. Anyway, so when I was at the Democratic Convention, when Obama was uh, nominated, that last night, there were a bunch of... See, holy shit. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't do this that often. Um, there were a bunch of uh, senior officers that had come in support of Barack Obama. And they were all on stage there. And I looked out among these senior, these generals, and I noticed one guy that I knew. Oh, wow. And I'm like, holy shit, that's, that's Larry. And they had all gathered there. And they were showing their support for the Democratic nominee. And not one person in that stadium stood up to applaud them. Wow. I did. I guess there was a smattering of applause for these men. The right thinks they own this story. These people, whether they be troops, whether they be veterans, and we give it away to them. And if they own this story, they have a lot of explaining to do. Because we heard it during the campaign, 20 of these people kills him or herself every fucking right. day. After, after serving and protecting us and, and After being... putting their lives on the line, whether or not you agree with the politics is a different story, but they put their lives on the line. And more of them are dying now then died during combat in Iraq yes. and Afghanistan. And it is not just a problem for them, it's a societal problem. You look at Jason Kander, right, out in Kansas City. You lose that leadership, it's out. It's a, it's a societal problem that we need to claim ownership of because we can't make the mistake that we made after Vietnam of conflating the politics with the people right. who, took, who took up the call and being dehumanized in the process once they're no longer yeah. able to contribute as they once did. So anyway, there are many other things and factors, that, but that, those were part of the factors that drew me to work with these folks, and, and uh, I'm glad I did it. Um, because, awesome. because, because, be, because I... The, the, the film is about healing, and it was, and it's kind of done. It, you know, it was, it was kind of an accidental film. There happened to be a woman who was filming the process. It was really about making a piece of theater, and so it's very intimate and it's very genuine because nobody was paying attention to these cameras over in the corner. So it's a film about healing for the purposes of healing, not only for them but for the audience, and it's also about healing something else which is afflicting our society now, and it's the perversion of uh, messaging in our country right now and storytelling particularly around these uh, narratives. 
And so what I appreciate about the film is that we've given voice to folks that we don't hear from. We hear from the blowhards. We hear the political manipulation. We hear the vets used and the troops used to divide us. But we never hear from them. And they're not what we're led to believe. No. They're, uh, they're a pretty extraordinary group of people for the, for the most part. And uh, we need to listen to them instead of listening to the asshole politicians who, uh, who use them, who weaponize them against us. And this is beautiful whiskey that you brought us. Yeah. And I, I also want to just thank Jesus you. Jesus um, so Do we just drink it in like one sip? Is that There's no sipping, room for right? Yeah. Shop. So this Shop. is my, so she, she asked me if I had a skill, you know, so this is my skill. It's like, you know, Saturday night. I, I you know, I'm pretty skilled at drinking whiskey on a Saturday night. But this, should, can I tell this story quickly? Yeah. Um, behind this, the reason that I, and then full disclosure, down. I'm actually... I'm an investor in this bottle now. <laughs> That's true. Well, you better drink the whole thing to truly what. invest in it. So I'll tell you where you are now. I'll tell you. Oh, so, so this is called. This is a bottle called Uncle Nearest. Yeah, it's a great um, American story inside this bottle and inside this glass. Make, uh, the, this, make the promo sort of short. Yeah, make it short. Okay. So, so this is named after a man named Nathan Nearest Green. He's the first African American master distiller on record in this country. It's, uh, he was born in Maryland, 1820, I think. He went to Tennessee like uh, sometime later. And he became a master distiller on this farm where a young guy came to work for him, young, industrious boy, and, uh, whose, whose mom had died when he was four months old. And he went ultimately to work for this guy. His dad died when he was 15 years old. He learned to be a master distiller from this guy. He started a, a, a company as a result of what he learned from, the, from Nearest Green. And uh, this young boy was named Jasper Newton. So that was his legal name. Uh, you might know him as Jack Daniel. Wow. Learned to be a, na- a master distiller from this man. <laughs> and uh, what distinguishes this Tennessee whiskey from bourbon whiskey is a sugar maple charcoal filtering process that was mastered by this man. It's what distinguishes American whiskeys from Scotch and Irish whiskeys. And one of the great things I, I find about this story is that, you know, our history is so much more interesting and, and complex than we're actually most often led to understand. But if you exclude the contributions of a man like this, then you'll never understand the truth of who we are. And so inside this bottle is a great American story. Yeah. Uh, drink to that in one sip. One sip? Yeah, one sip. Ready, bands? Cheers, you guys can also drink. And, if you and to like. all of you. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, my God. You gotta, you gotta, I drank mine. Huh? Do you seriously think I'm... Does it look like Brett Kavanaugh to you? <laughs> You look like the opposite, and I want to thank, thank you, you for all of your incredible work. I'd like to have you back to be able to talk about Westworld and OG. All and, that. Yes. Let's do can, it. can we have you back? Sure, why not? Um, if you'll have me. And I, I want to just thank you. I know that you like to surf, so I got you some, some surfing wax Sweet. and a surfing mat. Awesome. Some toys from Factory of uh, RGB and Obama so that your kids can be reminded cool. of some good political <laughs> heroes. 
And because you are a global citizen in the truest sense of, of the word and not in the hashtag, let's look at uh, you know poverty porn type of, of, of reflection of it, I wanted to give you this beautiful hat called Here We Are Hat. It's by um, E for Effort, which are local artists, and it's the globe. Wow. You can check it out. It's very cute and very timely. And I also got some wonderful treats from Rustin Daughters for you, which are also now local to Brooklyn in addition to Manhattan. And when does Hanukkah start? I know. You're doing pretty well here. Yeah. And, um, of course, a uh, Park Slope co-op bag. That way you can pick awesome. up a lot of women and whoever else you'd like to uh, you know, let them know that you're a really tough guy. Cool. Very cool. Thank you, Jeffrey Wright. This was such a such a, a treat. Thank you. It was such a joy to be able to interview Brian Lair on this live recording of Employee of the Month. I highly recommend going back into the archives to listen to our first interview on Employee of the Month, where he really delves into getting his start in the business. Brian Lair is best known as the Peabody Award-winning host of The Brian Lair Show, which you can hear every day on WNYC. He has this rare quality of treating everyone like an equal, whether you're a hot dog vendor or the mayor. And his ability to listen as well as his acumen is so palpable. I was so thrilled to be able to sit down with him. Okay, enough of me yapping. Let's hear from Brian Lair. So this is what you all look like. (laughs) I thought you were all taller. (laughs) Okay, do you also get, um, because I wanted to like, the first time I met you, I wanted to be like, first time um, listener, long time, or sorry, first time caller, long time listener. Do you get that a lot too? Get that a lot. Walk down the street, people come up and say, long time listener, first time saying hello on the street. They think they're funny. I need more alcohol if I'm going to get berated for my bad dad jokes. I really wanted to ask, like, do you get recognized all the time? Do people come up to you, or do you feel like you're able to be a chameleon? Well, being on the radio at first for me was sort of the perfect level of fame, you know, because... I could be anonymous in public if I wanted because people only knew my voice. But if I wanted to pull it out and use it, then I could say who I was and people might recognize who I was. These days, you know, because the internet has so many visuals, a lot of people who listen do also know my face. Well, I'm wondering if they would recognize you when you were, I imagine, a CBD oil salesperson. We have a picture of you when you were um, starting out. That is quite a Jufro, I have to say. I'm very impressed. You look employee like... of the month. I was outstanding in my field. <laughs> wow, wow. Can you tell the audience? Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Can you tell the audience why that is a knee slapper? Brian. What? Can you tell the audience why that is, why you're, why, if the, the uh, listening audience, why that's a knee slapper of a joke? Because this photo, in this photo, I don't even know where I was, but in this photo, I am standing in a field (laughs) in younger days when I have very long and wild hair and a very long beard and John Lennon glasses. And a hip jeans jacket and uh, khakis, just to make sure that you weren't too hip. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from D.C. 
C. That's all I grew up with. So you were a flautist or flutist? Is that correct? Oh, well, as a kid, I grew up playing the flute. I think this came from my father. Both my parents were into music, but my father had played the fife in the army. Jeffrey was talking about the profundity of military service. Yeah. My father enlisted after World War II, before Korea, who knew what kind of adventure, what kind of danger he might encounter. They stationed him to New Jersey. Well, it is a challenge. I think that's something that's so I guess what do you, yeah, what do you do in traffic. What do you do when yeah. you're in Fort Dix? I guess you learn to play the fife. So anyway, I grew up with music. I was playing the flute and later the saxophone. And, um, you know, I mean, that musical career ended around 10th grade. We have an interview, actually, that you can hear between Brian and I, so I'm not going to talk too much about your formative years as a, a DJ, because people can go to Employee of the Month show and listen. But I did want to highlight, I mean, one of, you, one of your many gifts is your incredible ability to listen, and you have people call in, and it seems like such a, a challenge. Is it ever a challenge not to start laughing? And maybe I can play a clip. Susan in Newdorp. You're on WNYC. Hi, Susan. Yes, good morning. Can you hear me? Sure. Okay. Ever since I was small, I've had a fear of caterpillars because I was in a few epidemics where they were falling out of the tree and stuff. Now, I based my whole life. I won't travel anywhere because I think I might come across a caterpillar. Would this drug be able to help me be, uh, get over my fear? I'd rather have a rat in my face than a caterpillar, all right? <laughs> well... What you don't know about that clip, seriously, is that that was in a very serious segment. The topic was that there was a scientific study, a medical study, that beta blockers, which are really a blood pressure medication, could also be used in some cases, potentially, to make people forget very traumatic events. Oh. Very serious. Now, you musicians on stage may know that some people use beta blockers off-label for musical stage fright. Don't tell anyone about that, because you're not supposed to do it. Some musicians do it. No, they stick to ayahuasca anyway. (laughs) And we had actually done a little segment on that once on the show. But then along came this very serious study about beta blockers possibly being usable to help people forget trauma. And so we were taking calls on that. And this woman called in who apparently had this deathly fear of caterpillars. Now, obviously, the way she presented, and if you hear it out of context, you think, okay. Um, But sometimes what seems wacky intersects with the very serious. Well, that that might be a good transition for, we're going to, in this clip, I I was just curious, are there times where you feel like you want to respond? Or uh, here's a better way to put it. We'll listen to the clip and then I'll ask the question. There are other things in pop culture that make men, including myself, feel emasculated, downgraded, insulted, whatever word you want to use. One specific example was when we get on the subway and you have these subway ads under the guise of public safety that say guys can't spread their legs more than a certain amount of inches because that's called manspreading. I mean, who invented that word? Um, Or if a guy is explaining something to a woman, now that's called mansplaining. 
So it's like all these words that are being invented that never existed, attacking guys in the simplest things. We have genitals between our legs. That's how we sit. It's, it is a hard time to be a man. I know. It is such, such a hard time. How do you choose when you share your opinion and, and when you decide to let the person be who they are? Well, with the callers, I mean, I'm listening to that clip and I'm thinking, gosh, I mean, I feel like I'm a white male in America. I was born winning the lottery. And we were doing a segment on uh, with Michael Kimmel, who studies masculinity at Stony Brook and writes about it. And the particular topic was how traditional notions of masculinity contribute to guys joining hate groups and how addressing that can be used to wean guys away from hate groups. And most of the men who called in were very sympathetic to that idea and they were very introspective about that idea. And, you know, there's always one. And that was the one who felt very picked on by the whole everything. And so he said that. Um, So there are different ways of expressing your opinion. You know, I want to make... I mean, one of the things that is essential to my job is making people feel comfortable. And that doesn't mean not being real, but it means, like, making a politician feel comfortable so that I can get some real stuff out of them. But so there's a fine line between that, right? Allowing someone to feel at home so they can feel... um and should, I think, be allowed to share who, who they are, and then also sanitizing what they are saying. This is, this is exactly. a, a very minor example that I'm using, but, you know, when you have uh, Cy Vance, you know, I mean, people who I see as, you know, partially responsible for why we have Trump in, in office, how do you deal with that line? And we had him on the show, and I held his feet to the fire in a one-on-one about that. And one of the things, to get back to your question about dealing with people and expressing my opinion, there are different ways to let people know how you feel. Like, with that clip, there wasn't really much reason for me to just sit there and say, man, you are really a jerk. You're the one who gives the rest of the men a bad name. Because he was having having an experience. Also, people could listen to someone like him and judge for themselves. And I don't remember what I asked the guest after that. Sometimes in a situation like that, where I thought, oh my God, really doesn't get it, I won't say it to the person's face or to their ears, but I'll then talk to the guest and say, how often do you get this? And it starts a conversation about something that I obviously think is wrong-minded, but without making him feel uncomfortable. Because we want people to be able to call up and reveal themselves even in ways that we may not agree with, but that reveal something that's real in the world and uh, not have them feel that they're going to be humiliated. Well, and the man spreading one, it's not that he's wrong. It's that's why I use that as an example that there are times I'm sure where other people spread their legs in inappropriate ways as well and take up too much space on the subway. So he's not, he's certainly not alone. And there, what you just said about the, the fact that you want people to be able to call up and, and be able to share. And I want to play the second clip now because when it happens, these moments are, are magical as a listener to be able to hear, I think. 
I'm biased. My daughter, we went through trouble last yesterday to get her to vote for the first time. My 16-year-old woke me up this morning and said, Mommy, I told you, white people don't like us. It is it's sad that they were in this great country, believing in everything that it stands for, for a child to feel like that. And she feels it in school. She feels it everywhere. For us to elect Donald Trump, it just goes to show that these children, whatever they see and believe, it's true. And that's all I have to say. So that clip was from the morning after Donald Trump was elected president. And I went to sleep the night before not knowing for sure who was going to win because I had to get up to be on the air at 6 o'clock in the morning. They brought me in early that day because they knew they were going to want to take calls from listeners and I was going to help the morning edition hosts field the calls. And I was all prepped for, okay, what does it feel like to have our first woman president? You know, <laughs> And then I woke up and heard that. Uh, I've not heard that, but heard the result. <clears throat> and I realized that I wasn't going to be going to work this morning and doing like the Steve Kornacki thing at the map, you know, or John <laughs> King on CNN. See this little county here in northwest Wisconsin? 2,700 people there. If they didn't vote for Donald Trump, it wasn't going to be that. It was going to be a therapy session. Because we're in New York, and people were going to be feeling like that woman felt... In grief. In grief. And fear. And in shock. Mothers calling in to say, I don't know what to tell my daughter. And I certainly didn't have the answers. But my job was to be the receptacle for that. And that woman called in. And so that's, you know, one moment you're doing news analysis from a kind of policy analysis standpoint. And the next moment you're holding what my producer Megan Ryan calls news church which is letting everybody come together in a community. And there, might, there can be different opinions in News Church, but to have something like that moment on the air from that caller and let her feel comfortable enough to have us as a venue to express that. Do you... Yeah. I, I duly deserve a round of applause. I, I think that uh, public radio listeners can defy stereotypes and be a little louder in their <laughs> applause. in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's hard for me reading the news, and I'm so glad that I've been able to have all these, uh, the privilege to be able to volunteer and to be able to, to get involved. But I'm just curious, like, you're immersed in these issues. Like, do you have burnout? You know, for whatever reason, burnout has not been a problem for me. I think one of the reasons is... You're enjoying this? <laughs> in a certain way. There's... I don't mean I'm enjoying what's happening to our country, but one of the ways that I'm in a privileged position is that I get to be able to say something about it. I get to be able to frame conversations about it. I get to be able to set up structures for other people to say things out loud in public about it. And I feel worse for my friends and, you know, the larger world who 
is just bursting and burning out without even working in the news business yeah. um, from what's going on in the world. And generally, I feel like at least I have an outlet. And I hope that I use it responsibly. But I also, you know, feel like, okay, I'm going to go do something now. I get to go do something. And so it tends to energize me more than burn me out. I'm glad to hear that. I also wanted to give you some fun because I feel like I, I've had you on the podcast and I said, I really want you to come to a live recording because they really are fun and it is so wonderful to be with this incredible audience. Thank you all for coming out. Uh, you guys can give yourselves a deeper round of applause, a little more self-esteem, a little more... And I wanted to uh, play a game since I know you like sports. I thought we would do um, Yankees versus Mets. You're asking me? Yeah. You're asking me Yankees yeah. versus Mets? Yeah. Oh, well, then I have to tell you a story because my parents are from the Bronx. I started life in the Bronx. My first Yankee games were in the Bronx, but I really grew up in Queens. So Near the stadium. Near Shea Stadium, that's right. So I said my first Yankee games, my first baseball games were Yankee games in the Bronx. So I was imprinted with the Yankees, but growing up in Queens, I was also imprinted with the Mets. So I'm one of those people who can sit up here, you know, in public and say, I'm a both fan without it being bullshit. (laughs) No. Yikes. That's a different game. You had everyone right up until then. (laughs) We're doing so well. There is a thing that's too nice. So let's introduce Yankees versus Mets. This is a new official. This is the first annual. We are de-virgining this game together. How does it feel? I would have hoped you would be a little more excited. Okay. Okay. We're going to do Yankees. (laughs) These questions came directly from Mike Pesca. I'm going to give him... Credit and responsibility for these questions. I have four. The great, the great Mike Pesca, by the, the way, who the was Pesca, with right. us at On the Media at, at WNYC and was a great NPR sports correspondent yes. and now does the podcast on Slate. Yes. The Gist. Yes. Right? A renaissance man, Mike Pesca. And we may need to bring Jeffrey back out with his whiskey, Jeffrey Wright, to, um, if you get, let's say, okay, there are four questions, uh, yeah, we'll do four questions, and if you get all four right, you can have a, a shot of whiskey, does that sound good? Okay. They, they don't give as good prizes on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Uh, the first question, how many total fingers do Mr. and Mrs. Met have combined? <laughs> I will say 12. 16. That's okay. You still, have th- uh, you still have three other chances. You still have three. We'll do FBI. We'll do first ball in. What was the name of the abandoned Yankee mascot? Wow. The Yankees had a mascot? Pesca made these questions very hard, I must say. He might be gunning for your job. I don't know. See, the Yankees think they're too cool for everything. They don't do the wave. They don't have names on the back of their uniforms. So maybe you don't like the Yankees and Mets equal. He's <laughs> trying to talk you out of it. <laughs> Can I give you a hint? I can't even think of a Yankees mascot. I'll give you a hint. It is a term used to describe someone a feat that is no longer used anymore. But um, A what? It's a term that would be used to describe a, a male who is a feat but is no longer used anymore. Who is giving away answers here? What kind of contest is this? I think he's going to get into graduate school. Luckily, I didn't hear it. Well, they have Mr. Matt over there. They don't have Mr. Yankee. 
there's like this top hat thing, but I have no idea. Okay, I'll give you one more hint. There was a TV show with um, two characters, and one was named Amos, and the other was named another name, and it rhymes with that name. <laughs> Dandy. Yay! I think you're doing great. Your two clues together were really good. Okay, oh, good. Okay, good. All right. This, qu- I, this question, well, I'll do a softer question, because his question is really hard. After he retired from playing for the Yankees, what player became a member of the Munip- Municipal Parole Board? Softballs. Just pitching softballs over here. Come on. Um, who doesn't know? Can you ask me, like, <laughs> who won the 1999 World Something. Series? Something like that. <laughs> All right, I'll give you one. This person is most famous, sadly, for an illness, although it's great that he shed light on this illness. Lou Gehrig? Nice! <laughs> it's quite a coincidence that he got that disease. Yes. Thank, thank, uh, that was helpful to get the answer to this question. Too soon? All right, I think that this will... We'll do one easy question then. Okay. Who are the all-time doubles leaders for Yankees and Mets? All-time doubles leader. This is what's going to decide whether Jeffrey Wright. I will guess Derek Jeter for the Yankees and David Wright for the Mets. Nice. The crowd goes wild. So. So I don't get the whiskey. Do I get at least a beer, maybe? You, you can definitely get... Uh, hopefully, Jeffrey Wright will come back out with uh, whiskey. While we wait for him, we can give you some <laughs> other wonderful prizes. And I have a new sports trivia question myself to use mm. after coming to the show tonight, which is, who played corner and wide receiver against Brett Kavanaugh <laughs> in <Yeah>. high school? <laughs> Well, I wanted to tell you how many people in Brooklyn love you, and that's why I got you this Park Slope food co-op bag, so that you feel that you have a tote bag with you at all times. In public radio, we're tote bags short. I know. I knew it was a problem. In addition, uh, I got you this book from the Park Slope co-op about Mr. Ellie Poo, who is the world's only living paper mill, and it's all about elephant dung, which I'm sure you'll be thrilled to receive as a gift. Um, here's one. It's a coloring book. He deserves this for the Yankees and the Mets. Mr. Jeffrey Wright. Um, to Jeffrey together. Wright. I also got you this And to book. Katie Lazarus. How is so much of that bottle empty? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Where did that it's, it's been ten minutes. It's pretty nice to have Jeffrey Wright as your butler. That's why I took it backstage. Hey. 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 Simple. You can't, you can't do this on radio or television, <laughs> but I guess at Employee of the Month you can. You can do this. We're a little more loose. Fast and loose, that's why they pay us the little bucks. I got you this wonderful book on the origins of sports. It's by Gary Belsky and Neil Fine. Because I know that your son is a uh, sports journalist and you love sports, so I wanted to get that for you, as well as as close to a pad as I could. This is a T-shirt that is from E for Effort that looks like a writing pad. Or, sorry, a a paper, excuse me, that we write on. I write on. A lined paper T-shirt. Yes. A lined paper T-shirt, thank you for it. I'm learning English and I'm going to get it by the end of the show. And I also wanted to get you these little dolls from Factory so that you can always right-size politicians when you need to. It's a Trump doll. Trump? I had the, the idea, I'm going to give this away, and then somebody else is going to patent it and do it. I had the idea of inventing a 
instead of a Melania bobblehead doll, a Melania knobblehead doll. So <laughs> she would go. <laughs> but that You're was. Really funny. But that was earlier on in the administration. I think we now we think that she really agrees with them on everything. Oh, she does. She's always, she does. Yeah, I wanted to give you these so that you, that whenever you're dealing with politicians and they're driving you crazy, you can think of them as children. Thank you, Katie. I want to thank you for everything, Brian Lehrer. I'm so thrilled to have you as a guest. Will you come back at the end of the show? One, two, three, and four. And some press That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank all of you for listening and tuning in, as well as the fans who come to the show. I'm so happy to see you all. And if you enjoy this, please go to iTunes and leave a good review. It's a very nice Hanukkah, Christmas, and Kwanzaa gift. I could not do the show without all of the wonderful people who work on it, particularly my band, my MC, excuse me, my intern's intern, Andrew Jelly D. Bancroft, as well as beatboxer Chris Shockwave Sullivan, Camille Harris, Eric Biondo, Ashley Perez Flanagan, who also joined us, coming very far off Broadway to make it to Brooklyn, as well as Leanne Mokia, Adam Abel, Meredith Kaufman, The Bell House, Jessamine Molly, Faith Smith, Shirley Chan, Jason Miller. And I really, really, really want to give a shout out to our sponsors, E for Effort Editions. Check out E for Effort Editions online to see some of their really wonderful gifts. Russ and Daughters, Factory, which is F-C-T-R-Y, The Strand Bookstore, and of course, the Park Slope Co-op. You should, if you have not, seen a video where I gave out samples of very real breast milk in front of the Park Slope Co-op. I'm Katie Lazarus. Have a good one. Rewind the show, y'all. Everybody back up. It's time for the Employee of the Month wrap up. They'll come out and then they'll hold their plaques up. It's time for the Employee of the Month rip wrap up. Guess one, what a wonderful way to start the night. The best West worldie in Jeffrey Wright. He's coming out, yes, from backstage. Give it up for this man, cause he's all the rage. You're brilliant, boys, full of class. Best of all, you kicked Brett Kavanaugh's ass. And his wide hips, you're a better competitor. If you give up acting, we'll make you a senator. Your mom was here, and that's a challenge. But we don't want your comfort, we want your talent. Now give it up, just hold your plaque up. And now for guest number two's rip wrap up. We do guess number two would impress without trying. WN we is YC's Lara Clama Brian. Come out. Yes, there he is. Oh my god, he's one of the best in the biz. Whatever the topics, we won't doubt you. Long time listener, first time rapping about you. I'm freaking out, people are like, what's the matter with you? I'm starstruck and definitely afraid of caterpillars. Uh, whether the news is good or hurts, we're glad you're the pastor of our news church. So give it up, everyone. Hold your plaques up. Give it up. That's the end of the wrap-up. Drink your drinks and spark your blunts and give it up for the employees of the month.